Good day to you. Today we are uh, we're back in First Chronicles. Uh, we did our first chapter the last time we were together. So today we're going to make our way through the second chapter of First Chronicles. I was told that last time we were together, I apologized too much for you know the study of it. I w- that's not what I was doing, uh, but maybe that's what I did because people commented, "Don't apologize. It's the Word of God." So nonetheless, today we are studying, as I said, 1 Chronicles chapter 2. Now the chapter begins, we read this the last time we were together, and it begins with the genealogy of a fellow by the name of Israel. Now chapter 1, the purpose of chapter 1, ultimately these genealogies is this bridge idea. How do we get from this guy to that guy, occasionally stopping for uh, some key information about uh, a particular person? So chapter 1, we went from Adam to Noah, and then we went from Noah to Abraham. Now, Abraham, you remember, he had his sons, two of which uh, were uh, Esau uh, and Isaac. And then through Isaac, he gives birth to uh, Israel. I, I think I mixed up some names there. But nonetheless, we, we make our way eventually to Israel. Israel's name is also Jacob. His name is changed. We read about that story in Genesis chapter 32, where this man's life is changed. And as a symbol of that, God changes his name. His name goes on to be Israel, which means governed by God. And so in Genesis chapter 32, we learn about that. Well, here in the beginning of our passage, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, now these are the sons of Israel. They are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Now on the, the slide that we've placed up there, slide number one, you'll notice it has Israel at the top and it has his 12 Sons. We also know that Israel had at least one daughter that is listed for us and mentioned for us in, Gen- in the Genesis passage here. But here, nonetheless, we are following the family lines of these gentlemen, and that's why their names are given for us. One of the things you might be able to notice from the slide up above here is that the names are in one of four different colors. And that corresponds back to the parents, or the, wife, the mother, I should say, of each of these boys. So those first six boys sharing the the same mom. Then you have two that are in like a red color, two that are in a blue color, and two that are sort of in a purple color. And you can read the Genesis passage uh, to get a little more information on that. But specifically, we want to follow one of these sons. And this is how these genealogies are going to work. We're going to continue to follow the bridge to get to a key person. And the son that we want to follow is found for us in verse 3. And it says, now, the sons of Judah. Now, you remember, Judah is Israel's fourth son. This is Isaac's grandson. This is Abraham's great-grandson. They would have lived during the same time, and they would have had interaction with one another. And this is Judah. And it tells us that Judah gave birth, verse 3, to Ur, Onan, and Shelah. These three, Bathsheba, the Canaanite, bore to him. And so those three share the same mom, her name being Bathsheba. Now, verse 3b gives us some information. It says, now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil. In the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. I find that interesting. If you go back to Genesis, you read the same exact words. Ur was evil, and the Lord put him to death. But it doesn't say how he was evil or what he did. 
Now, as you read the scriptures, some of these people in the scriptures have did some horrible things, very evil things, and yet the Lord didn't put them to death. I don't know what this man did specifically that the Lord felt he had to be taken out of the, the equation, but he was, and he was put to death in 3b. And then verse 4 tells us, and his daughter-in-law, his being Judah, Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, also bore him Perez and Zerah. And then 4a sort of wraps it all up, and it says, and Judah had five sons in all. So if we take Israel's line, Jacob, and we make our way down to his fourth son, Judah, we see that Judah had five sons. Three of them, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, they were with Bathsheba, and two of them, Perez and Zerah. Now, if you caught that, what you discovered in verse 4 is, wait a minute, you're telling me that Judah had a relationship with his daughter-in-law, and they had two kids? That's peculiar. That's unusual, Greg. We don't do that sort of thing here in the United States. And I can see on some of your faces, you don't think they should do that in the Bible as well. Uh, So let let me go back and tell you the story. The full story for us is given in Genesis chapter 38. And it is a story, let me tell you. Uh, the other day, I was reading through this material, and my wife's having a quiet time. She's sitting in, in my chair, by the way, dear. Uh, she was sitting in my little chair. I was off on the couch, and she's having a quiet time. And I'm kind of reading through this and just thinking through uh, these things there. And I, I, I must have interrupted her five different times uh, as I came to another jaw-dropping part of the story, saying, are you familiar with this story? Have you read this lately? Uh, because this is something else. Let me, let me uh, share with you. So you have Judah. Judah, again, the grandson of Isaac, he moves down into what would become the southern portion of Israel. It's not Israel yet, but it will become that at the time. Uh, And he's going to take on a job as a shepherd. While he is there, he marries a Canaanite woman whose name is given to us as Bathsheba, and together they have three sons. Now that's his first mistake, because ten chapters earlier, his father spoke into his life and he said, you must not take a Canaanite woman, to be your wife. Now, there's nothing, the Canaanite women weren't ugly, they weren't weird, they weren't strange or something like that, but they had spiritual practices which differed from the people of God, the people of Israel. And he knew, uh, the father knew, that, they, that this Canaanite woman or any Canaanite woman was going to lead you astray. It was going to be a danger to your faith. It's very similar to the uh, exhortation we have in the New Testament about not being unequally yoked spiritually, we know that it can rub off on a person, have an effect on that person, and damage your faith. It's the idea of, you know, if a person is in a six-foot hole, it's much easier to pull a person down into that hole than it is to pull a person up out of that hole. And so here, the warning goes forth, don't, don't take a Canaanite woman to be your wife, but he does so anyway. And so this is Judah's first mistake. Now, they have a child whose name is Ur, called in our passage here and in Genesis as evil in the sight of the Lord, so evil that the Lord put him to death. Their second son is a man by the name of Onan, and he's not much better. We don't have the story here, but we are given the details in Genesis chapter 38 that I want to draw to your attention. So in Genesis 38, we're told that Ur marries his Canaanite woman, Tamar. Ur was killed by the Lord before the two of them could have any kids. And the, the practice in that particular day, it was a Canaanite practice, uh, which was accepted in the Jewish culture. Deuteronomy chapter 25 gives it a name. It's called the Leverite marriage. And so it's this practice that wasn't created by the Jewish people, but it was accepted by the Jewish people, and they were given regulations for it. One of the regulations was, well, let me explain how it works is, it works this way, that if the oldest son dies, it was the obligation of the next born son, if he was not yet married, to take the woman 
and have a child with that particular woman, take her as his wife. The first child that is born of that couple would technically count as the dead brother's son. And he would, in a sense, become the firstborn son and all this sort of stuff. It gives new meaning to the whole idea of who's the best man at your wedding, you know, and who's standing in there kind of looking at the lady and thinking, could I marry her? I don't know if I want to. I don't want to be the best man. Pick somebody else, you know. And so here Onan is going to take uh, this woman Tamar now as his wife. Raise up a child through her that would technically be Ur, his big brother's son, and all the inheritance would pass down to Ur. And so here we have the story that goes on. Onan is totally fine with the, the sex part of things. Sure, that sounds great. I can deal with that, no problem. But as far as the whole give my inheritance to somebody else, no, nah, I don't know if I like this idea. And we have this passage here. It is recorded for us in Genesis 38. I'm not going to make any comment on this because it's almost at a level of like, oh, should we be talking about this in public? But here's what it says. It says, now then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his offspring. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen upon the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. So he was totally fine, like I said, with the sex part, but he was not fine with raising up offspring for someone else. And we have commentary on that. In Genesis 38.10, it says, Now what he did was wicked, in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death also. So now Ur is dead. Onan is dead. And there is Judah remaining with one son left, whose name is Shelah. And he has to make a decision. Does he give Shelah, his last born son, to Tamar in a Leverite marriage as well? So that hopefully the two of them could raise up offspring. Now the text indicates to us that Shelah was too young. Um, at the time. So Judah essentially says to Tamar, my son is too young, but when he is grown, you two are pledged. When he is grown, we will give him to you and he will uh, raise up offspring for you, Tamar. The transaction will be completed at that time. But the reality is that we see as the passage plays itself out is that Judah never had any intention to give Shelah, his third-born son, to Tamar. So he's deceiving her. He's tricking her. Yeah, sure, everything will be fine. Don't worry about it. You just wait over there and, and it'll all work itself out. And that's mistake number two. Now you might look and you say, well, why didn't he want to just give Sheila here? Well, we don't have any information in the scriptures. But remember last year or last week when we were together, I shared with you that there is this thing that are called the Mishnas. And the Mishnas are the rabbinical commentaries on the Hebrew people or on the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And those Mishnas written some 2,000 years ago, they've become so accepted in the Jewish culture that in many ways, they've kind of become like Bible. And so whereas they're not actually the words penned from God, they're sort of, well, it's in the Mishnah, it must be true. Because this is what all the, the rabbis have taught over the centuries and so on and so forth. And in there, what we read is that the reason why Judah did not give Shelah to, to his daughter-in-law Tamar is because he was somehow fearful that she was the reason that Ur died, and she was the reason that Onan died. There's something going on in that tent in there, uh, which is passing on poison or something, and she's killing these kids. It's her fault. Rather than pulling back and saying, I got a bunch of lousy sons, and God is striking them down dead, he blamed uh, Tamar for the reason for this. So he doesn't want to give up his third son, Sheila, who clearly is now of age. He's moved into age, but he's still not giving her to Sheila here. So, the story goes on, Genesis 38. 
And after a period of waiting, Tamar realizes, Judah's not giving me this son. And I'm going to die, you know, or I'm going to, more significantly, I'm going to grow old and there'll be no one to care for me. No social security in those days. I have no son that'll care for me. No family that'll care for me. And so she uh, decides, she comes up with a plan. The story tells us that there's a particular point in time when uh, Judah has to travel for work. Remember, he's a shepherd. There's a shepherd's convention. He's got to make his way uh, to this particular convention there. And when he gets to that convention, he encounters on the side of the road there, a busy city or something like that, he encounters a Canaanite woman, prostitute. And she would have had the veil. It would have been very, very clear that this woman was a prostitute. It turns out it's Tamar. He doesn't know who she is. She doesn't do this every single day. She knows that Judah is coming into town, and so she dresses herself up as a prostitute, and she entices him in one way or another. Hey, you know, fella, you know, whatever it may be. And she entices him, and Judah says, you know what, that sounds like a great idea. Doesn't know that it's Tamar, his daughter-in-law, as far as he knows it's some woman. And he goes into her, the passage tells us, and she conceives Now, when he is leaving the situation, he didn't bring his wallet with all of his money with him. Uh, The scripture says a goat. And so he says, you know what? I will leave with you a a sign of surety. I'll leave for you my ring. I'll leave for you my staff. You know, something that everyone will know. Like, remember the Fonz used to have his jacket? And everyone knew that was the Fonz's jacket. Well, it was something like that. He left something. Everyone knows that's Judas. So he leaves that there with her. He's going to work something out. We'll send, you know, the payment later on, whatever it may be can't find her later on because she's not a real prostitute who doesn't sit out there and and so he's never ever able to give her her payment uh, in this regard this is in the bible friends i'm not making a story of this is in here you're thinking oh where are we Uh, and so three months goes by and she is now visibly showing that she is pregnant and word begins to filter around that tamar the one who's pledged to be your son's wife sheila's wife She's with child. She's, the scripture says she's played the harlot. And Judah's response to that, have her put to death, have her killed. And so Tamar is dragged out on the scene. Judah makes his way back there, whatever it may be. Tamar is dragged out on the scene. And then it becomes one of those situations where it's, now what do you have to say for yourself before we execute you? And all she has to say for herself is, I am pregnant by the man who owns these things. Fonzie's jacket. And everybody knows, some of you don't even know who Fonzie is, some of you young people, but everybody knows that's Judah's. And I suspect Judah's eyes went big, and then they went down, because he knows I'm responsible. And she's not killed, by the way. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, I love that. That's what a great response. She's not killed uh, in this circumstance, and she will eventually go on, and she will give birth. Now, here's the fascinating thing here. How could Judah do this? Give into his lust in this way to see this prostitute. Rip off and deceive and cheat this woman and lead her along all this time expecting that he would take care of her but never, no intention ever to do so. How could he do all of that? Now he's faced with, in the public. Everyone sees his sin. And I believe God's conviction came on him from the passage. You can read that. God's conviction comes on him. And what does he do with that? There's a valuable lesson here for us. Because as a follower of Christ... There are going to be times where you didn't follow Christ. Christ was going in a particular direction, and you sort of stopped, and your eyes led you, your your path, your feet led you, and you went some other direction. And then you stop in this circumstance there, and you shocked yourself. I'm a follower of Christ. What am I doing over here? 
Why am I in this sin? I can't believe it. And God's conviction comes on you, and it kind of hits you there, and you know that you were caught. You know that you've been exposed. What do you do with that? You see, what a lot of people do with that is they minimize it away. Oh, it's no big deal. You say, yeah, I did this thing, and I probably shouldn't, and I don't really feel good about it, but everybody does it. Other people sort of, they, they, they go another direction. We rationalize it away. You know, people do a lot worse than I do, and whatever. And we just keep coming up with these excuses, or I'll just keep blocking it out, keep blocking it out, keep blocking it out. Eventually, it'll go away, and I won't think about it anymore as sin. The Scripture says in the New Testament, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. You, I'm sure you're familiar with the passage. What's very fascinating about it, the word confess means to acknowledge. You see, a lot of times I think we come to God and we think we're confessing our sin and we're saying, God, I have something to share with you and this is going to be a tough one. Sit down to hear this. And we inform God of our sin. You see, but that word confess means acknowledge. You see, the fact that you know that it's sin begins with God. And so God begins to press on your heart that was wrong, that was this, that was that. And then you come and you acknowledge that, Lord, I am sorry you were right. It was sin. You see, Judah here, rather than defending it, rather than hiding it, rather than minimalizing it, Judah recognizes it as sin. And he confesses it as such. And he moves on from there. And so, Christian follower of Christ, in your walk with Christ, when God lays upon your heart that there's an area of sin where you've fallen short of his standards and even of your own standards, acknowledge that as such, accept the washing of Christ through his work on the cross, and then move forward. And so Judah here, he moves forward. Takes Tamar in to be uh, his wife. His wife had already died. And they raise up two children. And quite honestly, this is, this is a Jerry Springer uh, show. You know, if they wrote a script for those shows, this would be a script that they would use. And what I appreciate about this story being in here, because the scripture doesn't hide, it doesn't mask, it reveals what it reveals. These are the things that our fathers of the faith, so to speak, they were involved in. And God worked despite that. And so you take this Jerry Springer life, and you have Tamar here, who is, uh, essentially, she comes out as this prostitute that has sex with her father-in-law, and they have a son, or two sons, and it is through that family line. If you go to Ruth chapter 4, verse 18, what you discover is that God, despite that whole mess of that sordid circumstance, God worked. And King David's great-great-grandmom, I may have missed a grade or so, is Tamar. You follow that through into the New Testament, and you get into Matthew chapter 1. And what you discover is most remarkable, I think, is that the Lord Jesus himself, in his earthly body, his great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, goes all the way back to a lady named Tamar and this circumstance. You may feel, my life, Greg, you don't know my life. Look who you're talking to. If you knew my past, if you knew my background, if you knew the things I was involved with, if you knew the things that I came out of, you would know that God can use a lot of people, but he can't use a person like me. But the scripture demonstrates and it shows that God can use the most sordid of circumstances and he can use any person. And here we, ha- we see Tamar being used. Well, Tamar gives birth to twins and they are Perez and Zerah. And so if you look at our chart here on the board here, slide number six, you'll notice that in verse five, it tells us that Perez gave birth to two sons. One is Hezron, the other is Hamul. If you go on to verse 6, what you'll notice is that her other son, Zerah, he gave birth to five sons. Zimri, Ethan, He-Man, master of the universe. Uh, Calcol and Darah, five in all. And so we have this. Now verse 7 in our passage here, it begins to speak of a fellow by the name of Carmi. 
Carmi is not listed in any of our passages anywhere. It's not one of the sons of Zerah, not one of the sons of Perez. It's not ten verses earlier, and he's coming back to it. And so Carmi needs to be or must be uh, an also known as an AKA. It's a nickname of one form. It's an alternative name for uh, perhaps one of Zerah's son. We don't know which one necessarily. But what becomes significant is not so much who his dad is and so on, but what becomes significant is his offspring. And he gives birth to a fellow by the name of Achan. And so you can see the grandson of Zerah. We're not sure who his dad is, but we do want to draw our attention to this fellow by the name of Achan. Now, the story of Achan is found in Joshua chapter 6 and Joshua 7. And he is referred to in this passage and in that passage as the troubler of Israel. I believe the name Achan means troubler or pain in the neck. Uh, is what it means here. I don't know why anybody would name their kid uh, annoying one or something like that, but that's what the kid becomes. Uh, And he becomes the troubler of Israel. And as we go back to the Joshua passage, Joshua 6 and 7, we remind ourselves of the story of Scripture. Genesis ends with Joseph and the children of Israel running down into Egypt because there was a famine in the land. And there they stay. Ultimately, they find themselves in slavery in Egypt. The book of Exodus, Moses leads the children of Israel after 400 years out of that slavery, crossing over the Red Sea. The books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy speak of the period of wandering around in the wilderness. Now, the promised land borders Egypt. Just make your way right in there. It should take three to four days of uh, walking to get the people from this place to that place, but it took them 40 years. Because God had to do some work in the children of Israel. And so as they're wandering around, they eventually make their way uh, to today what is the nation of Jordan. And so they are, they are on the east coast of Israel. And Moses is leading them, but Moses is coming to the end of his life. And God takes him to a high point, And he says, you see that land? That is the land that we promised. And the people of Israel will go in and they will possess that land. But it's not going to be through Moses. It's going to be through Moses' apprentice, a man by the name of Joshua. And Joshua, the first, uh, one of the first significant stories, they're all certainly significant, but one of the first significant stories is where Joshua is taken, I, I kind of picture in my mind, to this vantage point, and he says, you see that city there? And Joshua says, sure, that's Jericho. That's one of the greatest cities in the world, one of the most fortified cities in the world. High walls, they, they estimate that the walls that ran, went around the city, the circumference of the city, would have been 13 miles to go around those walls. Houses were built on the walls. That's how thick and how wide um, this walled city was. And God says, you're going to take that city. And Joshua, we know, was a man who wasn't quite sure of his place in this whole endeavor. And God continually had to remind him, Joshua, it's going to be okay. Trust me. Joshua, be strong and courageous in the Lord. Joshua, don't fear. And so again and again, Joshua is being reminded, Lord, how am I going to lead these people? Joshua, it's going to be all right. You're going to lead them by following me. And God tells Joshua... Here's the plan of battle. You're going to go to Jericho. You're going to get all the men of the army to line up, thousands, hundreds of thousands of men to line up. You're going to put seven priests in front of them, and you're going to walk around the city. And when you make your way around that 13 miles or so, you're going to blow the horn, and then everyone's going to go back to their tents and take the rest of the night off. And you're going to do that six days in a row. And then Joshua, on the seventh day, you're going to walk around the city seven times. But this time when you come to the last time around the city, you're going to blow the horn and the whole army is going to scream and I'm going to bring the walls and they're going to come tumbling down. Now, okay, all right, Lord, that seems weird. Uh, I don't know if you can do that. But imagine Joshua going into his meeting with the generals 
and explaining to him, here's the plan. Getting a big chalkboard, you know, and showing it up there on the chalkboard and, and simply writing, we're going to walk around and blow a horn. How foolish, how silly. But God had promised Joshua that I will be with you every step of the way. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to lead you. It's not your battle. It's my battle, and this and that. And Joshua believed that, just humbly believed that. All right, Lord. And God showed him so strong, and God did that. Now we come to the next chapter. And in the next chapter, they're about to approach a city that is called Ai. Now, Jericho was this great, wonderful city of the world, of the ancient world. Ai was this tiny little minuscule city that doesn't mean anything. And the men of the people, they came and they convinced Joshua, you don't need the entire 100,000-man army. Just send us two, 3,000 men. That's all we need. And we'll go in, we'll take the city real quick, give the rest of the guys a day off. Let them sleep in, let them relax, let them rest. And the story tells us that they are routed and that the men of Israel have to run for their lives out of Ai. And sadly, the scripture says that 36 men lost their lives in that battle. The only casualties we have in the entire book of Joshua. And it begins with a very interesting verse. It begins with this verse in Joshua 7.1. It says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, took some of the devoted things in the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. You see, when God told Joshua to lead the men into Jericho, he gave them this instruction. He said, when you go in and you win this battle, you are to keep yourself from the devoted things that are devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them to destruction, you take away any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Now, the devoted things that we are speaking of are the idols. And so the people of these, the Canaanite people of this land, they had their gods, they had their idols, and they were, you know, statues or whatever it may be, but they were oftentimes covered in a gold plate or something like that, and they were very attractive to the eye. And so here now, the children of Israel, God knows he, they're going to see that, and they're going to want to take these things for themselves. And one man does. And as we read in 7.1, his name is Achan, the troubler of Israel. Verse 2 goes on to say they go into the battle in Ai. They lose that particular battle. And then we read in verse 7, Joshua cries out to God and, he's, and essentially says, God, you said you would be with us everywhere we went. God, I told you I couldn't lead this people. Now people are dead. People are mourning. People are blaming me. God, where are you? Why? And then God gives the response to him. In verse 13, he says, there are devoted things in your midst. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Now, I think there are very valuable lessons in this passage. This is the passage which you'll hear in the Christian community where when people are talking about the sin of Achan or when they'll say something like, well, there's sin in the camp. This is what they're referring to. And there are valuable lessons for us as followers of Christ. I think the first lesson is this that we learn from this story of Achan is that God will not bless wanton rebellion. Now, what I mean by that is this, that there are times in your life where you blow it. You're driving down the street, somebody cuts you off, and you say something. And you think, well, I can't believe I said that. Where'd that come from? There are times you wake up cranky, and you're a jerk, and you treat everybody poorly. And then all the kids are finally gone, and the house is gone, and you're like, whew, I'm a jerk. And I treated everybody poorly, and you deal with it uh, in that circumstance. But then there are other times in our lives, and the other side of the, the spectrum here, is where you know it is sin, and you essentially say, I don't care. I want to do what I want to do. I'm tired of what other people think. 
I'm tired of, you know, squelching this desire. I'm giving in. I'm going to let them have it. I'm going to give in to that temptation. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And you essentially say, God, I don't care. Well, that's wanton rebellion. And God cannot bless a person. God cannot bless a family. God cannot bless a church that has secret, hidden, wanton rebellion. That's the first lesson that we learn from Achan. You move on to the next one here. The next point that a lesson I think we learn from Achan. And that is that our secret sins have consequences. You know, Achan, it tells us he went and he hid the items in his tent. Nobody really knew about it. It was a secret sin. No big deal. It doesn't bother anybody else. My sin doesn't harm you, so leave me alone. Let me do what I want to do. But we learn the lesson that our secret sins have consequences. And in this particular passage, 36 people lost their lives because of Achan's sin. And so we look at our lives and we say, you know what? What I do in front of my computer is nobody else's business. I'm not hurting anybody else watching what I'm watching. And then we look back and we, we know that in the pornography industry, that 70% of men apparently in the United States are in the grips of, we know that there's a young lady on the other side of that that doesn't want to be in the sex industry but has become a slave to the sex industry as a result of that. And we know that our sin is hurting other people. We wonder why our family is not moving forward and growing in our relationship with Christ. It's because dad is chained back over here with the sin that has him bound. And the family's only going to go far as, as far as dad will bring them. And so we do see that our sin has consequences that affect other people. And so when we tell ourselves, we try to deceive ourselves and say, I'm not hurting anybody else. The reality is people are being hurt and you have no idea. And then we move on to number three. And I think the final lesson that we learned from Achan, it's found in Joshua 7.22. And I referenced it a moment ago. But when Joshua brings Achan on the scene, the story's pretty cool. Read it, chapter 7. It's kind of fun of Joshua. Achan, the spotlight is shining down on him. And Joshua says to him, you know, where are the goods? Bring them out, expose them, put them out here in front of everyone. And his response is, well, they're hidden in the earth inside of my tent. And isn't that the way that sin is? You can't even enjoy it. He has these wonderful items he'd like to put on a nice table, put a spotlight on them so everybody can see them and all this. But because it is sin... He can't show it because it is sin. He has to hide it. Sin is not worth it. And sin, though it may satisfy us temporarily, it always brings us back to the place where we realize, man, that was never worth it. Why did I do that? How foolish, how silly. You know, the scripture, excuse me, not the scripture. There's a book that is called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in his book, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he talks about the effect that sin has. And he says that sin always isolates It always brings us to the place where we have to keep ourselves separate from other people. We can't be completely truthful. We can't be completely honest. We always have to keep ourselves hidden. We always have to wonder in our mind, do they know? Do they think? Are they thinking this about me? And so on. Sin has the effect of isolating us until eventually it drives us to the place where we're all alone and we're destroyed by that sin. And so sin needs to be brought into the light. And so here you have a man who has sinned, had great consequences upon the nation, 36 people die and all their families that are um, faced with that, and he has no ability to even enjoy the sin. And it has to be brought out into the light and it has to be exposed. Well, as we continue to move on, we read in verse 8 that one of Zerah's son is a fellow by the name of Ethan. And it tells us that Ethan gave verse, or gave birth, I should say, to Azariah. And you can see that on slide number 13 there. We now go from Zerah, 
one of Tamar's two kids. Remember, Judah and Tamar, they had twins. We now go from Zerah, and we go back over to the line of Perez. And Perez, it tells us in verse 9, had the son Hezron, who gives birth to Jeremiel, Ram, and Calebi. And verse four, uh, slide 14, I should say, it shows us the family line going from Israel to Judah to Perez to Hezron, and then to these three sons. And then starting in verse 10, we read a long line of individuals. It says, now Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab Nashon, who was the prince of the sons of Judah. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, and that's the Boaz from the book of Ruth, which is such a cool book um, there. And Boaz was such a cool fella. And then it goes on, it says, Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse. And that slide would essentially look like this. And so you can see the bridge, the direct line from Israel at the top all the way down at the bottom to Jesse. And this was one of the purposes of the chronicler. He traced it from Adam to Noah. He traced it from Noah to Abraham. And now essentially has traced it from Abraham to Jesse. Now why is Jesse important? We read in verse 13 and 15, he's important because of one of his nine children. One of his nine children, it says, Now Jesse fathered Eliab, his firstborn, Abinadab, his second, Shimei, the third, Nethanel, the fourth, Radii, the fifth, Ozim, the sixth, and David, a normal American name, the seventh. And their sisters were Zariah and Abigail, which is another lovely name. Uh, Zariah is wonderful too, by the way. Um, They're all fine. And this is what his family line would essentially essentially look at. We want to follow David. That's the purpose of this little sidetrack here. Now, I would like to draw your attention to a story of David. David is perhaps most well-known. There's a few different incidents in his life, but most people, whether you're a Bible student or not, you're a student studying the Word or not, you're probably familiar with David's slaying of the giant Goliath. Now, Goliath, the Scripture tells us, was uh, six cubits and a span, which is essentially nine foot tall. He was a monster in his day. And he was a Philistine. And we read in the, the scriptures here, in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 17 or so, that the Is- Israelite armies, they joined and they came up against the armies of the Philistines. Separating them is the Valley of Elah. And there's sort of these high points over here, Philistines over there, uh, the Israelites there, far enough, uh, you know, no one's going to shoot an arrow and get the other one, but they can yell across and hear one another and all this sort of stuff. And the passage goes on to tell us that David, this is right outside of the city of Bethlehem, and it tells us that David was a young boy. He was a shepherd boy, 12, 13 years old, old enough to kind of handle responsibility on his own, but nothing important. Just go out there with the animals and make sure they don't run away. And so David's out there as a shepherd boy. But every now and then, it seems like daily, his dad would call him, and he would say, little David, come here. He said, look, your mom has packed these lunches. Bring them to your brothers that are off uh, in the battle. And so the three oldest brothers, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shimei, they're only two, three, four miles away from David. So every day, David, he gets in his little pizza delivery truck, essentially, uh, and he makes his way out to the Valley of Elah, and he delivers the lunches to the brothers. Sticks around a while, thinks how cool this is, you know, all that kind of stuff, and then he heads back home. Now, one day when David goes to this valley... Something that occurred every day, but David had never observed it before. It's found for us here in 1 Samuel 17 that Goliath, the giant, the monster, he comes out of the woods or the the trees or whatever, down off the hill, 
And he makes his way down into the valley. And he begins to speak junk, essentially, and taunt. And he says, uh, why have you come out to draw up for a battle with hundreds of thousands of people? He says, am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of King Saul, the Israelite king? He says, choose for me a man, uh, choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants, and you'll serve us. And he says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. Well, that doesn't seem very fair. You've got a giant, and we've got little people over here. You know, you send out your scrawny little fella, and then we'll do this whole one-on-one and see who wins kind of thing. But anyway, the giant there is talking uh, this junk. The key phrase there is, it says, I defy the ranks of Israel today. The idea is not so much you people from Israel, it's that God that governs you people from Israel. And David, I love David's response. I want to work this into my vernacular uh, in some way or another. But David, he says this, he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Isn't that a great, yeah, get him, you know, it's like uh, Rambo or something. And so he said, who's this guy? He's shocked. Now, the other guys had heard this, you know, day after day after day. And like, oh, that's just that big guy. You know, don't worry, we're not going to go out there and fight him one-on-one. But here's David, and he said, yeah, but he's talking junk about God. Somebody, is somebody going to do something about this? And everyone's like, well, you know, the king said he'd give us lots of money if whoever would go out there and do it, but nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants to do it, somebody's going to do it. And then Eliab, and this is the reason I brought you to this story. Eliab, the older brother, it tells us, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. That seems serious. If you're kindling something, that's serious. His anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Do you hear the dismissiveness in his words? Hey, kid, you think you come out here and it's some cool thing, you know, to be in this battle or whatever? Go back to your cute little sheep and deal with that, and we will do the manly things. This dismissive attitude that comes from the brother. If you read David's response, David says, What have I done now? My sense is that David heard this sort of an attitude again and again and again. He's the little brother of all these big people. And they're belittling him. They mock him. They always put him down. David, you're no good. David, just get out of here. David, no, you can't play the game. David, do this, David. And so, Dave, what have I done now? He says, uh, essentially, to him. You know, when this sort of David begins to make his name for himself is when Samuel the prophet, a couple of chapters earlier, Saul, King Saul, had done an evil before the Lord, and the the Lord said, you know what, Saul, you can't be king anymore. The kingdom has been torn from you. I don't want you to be my king anymore. And he says to Samuel, God that is, he says to Samuel, he says, I want you to go to the family of the house uh, in the city of Bethlehem, and you're going to anoint a new king. And so Samuel says, okay. He shows up in Bethlehem. He gets there. And the people of Bethlehem say, are you here for peace, or are we in trouble? They said, no, everything's great. Just gather for me the house of Jesse. Now, word starts filtering around. Samuel's here. Samuel's the whole, I anoint kings person. He's coming here. He's looking for your family. I think he wants to anoint one of, the guy, one of your sons to be the next king. So Jesse puts on his fancy robe. He gathers up all his, his sons. He said, come on, get dressed, look good, uh, shave, do whatever you have to do, because Samuel is coming. And so Samuel then, he calls out the sons. And they sort of do this procession, somebody on an organ or whatever. And they do this procession, and in comes Eliab into the room. And I picture, you know, like the supermodels, they come walking with the attitude. And here comes in Eliab, and he's super tall, and he's super handsome and good-looking. And he comes out there, and he stands there. And, he, and Samuel looks at him, 
And he says, surely that's the one to himself. Because look, he's head and shoulders above the rest, just like Saul was. He's big and he's strong and he's muscular. He's a man of war. He's handsome and so on. That's got to be the one. And God tells us in 1 Samuel, uh, ah, darn, I don't have it. Let me read it to you. He says this, 1 Samuel 16, he says, God speaks to Samuel. He says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. And I think uh, Samuel, oh God, you punched me in the gut. I wasn't prepared for that. And you know, Lord, you were wrong. You were worried. I was wrong. I was looking at the outward specimen. You wanted me to look upon the man's heart. And so he says to Eliab, he says, thank you, but no thank you. And Eliab leads, leaves. And the next fellow, Abinadab, comes in. Looks great, looks wonderful. But God didn't confirm in Samuel's spirit, so he leaves. And then Shimei, and then he leaves. And then the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth. And then finally, we get to the place where Samuel says to Jesse, don't you have any more sons? I know God sent me here to your family. Don't you have any more sons? And Jesse the dad, and dads, we're supposed to encourage all of our kids, aren't we? You know, Jesse the dad says, well, yeah, we got one more kid. He says, but, you know, he's the youngest. Well, that, that's no big deal, right? Youngest, the word usage there is like the insignificant one is the word. So he said, yeah, we got one insignificant one out in the field with the sheep. And Samuel says, well, I want to be thorough. Bring him in. And so he brings in the youngest, and God says, that's the one. And David, anoint, or David is anointed to be the next king. He's a little boy. He won't become king for a decade or more. But he's anointed to become the next king of Israel. And as I tell that story, I'm reminded of a fantastic song that I recall uh, about 20 years ago in my walk with Christ. It's by a fellow by the name of Ray Boltz. Now, Ray Boltz isn't cool and hip, and so some of you may not be interested in his music, but his songs speak to my heart, like the song Thank You and the song Shepherd Boy. And in the song Shepherd Boy, the words read this way. I'm going to sing it to you. Maybe not. It says, one by one, Jesse's sons stood before the prophet. The father knew a king would soon be found. And each one passed, except the last. No one thought to call him. Surely he would never wear a crown. But when others see a shepherd boy, God may see a king. And even though your life seems filled with ordinary things, in just a moment God can touch you and everything will change. Because when others see a shepherd boy, God may see a king. And I think there are some valuable lessons for us today here. You see, because I think sometimes we look at people and we dismiss that God can do a work through that person because they're not young enough or they're not old enough. They're not cool enough or they they act too cool. They're uh, not good looking enough. They're not smart enough. They don't have the education. They don't have this. And we dismiss certain people that God would have us not to dismiss. I learned this lesson, Pastor Scott, share with you that the East Coast Pastors Conference is taking place. And when I was there, just when I started getting involved with Calvary Chapels and all this, I was probably about uh, 20, 19 years old or something like that. All of the pastors that I had come in contact with were these men of great stature, six foot three, six foot four, strong, muscular, much like myself. Uh, And every time I... I would look, I would be like, wow, I guess if you want to be a, a pastor and be, you know, 
used by God, particularly in this Calvary Chapel thing, then you've got to be big and strong and muscular uh, and handsome and funny and witty and so on and so forth. And so I'm sitting at uh, dinner or lunch, something like that, and the way they work it is lots of rooms, lots of, or big room, lots of tables, and you just go and the tables fill up, and you get to meet people from all over and talk to them. And I sit down, and there's two men there. One is a Kenda brought to life. You know, he's like six foot five, blonde hair, strong, handsome, and all this. And the other is a frail, older guy uh, sitting there. And as I begin to talk to them, in my mind, I said, that's the pastor. That fellow, he helps, you know, set up chairs or something like that. And I found myself all of a sudden interested in Ken, the Ken doc. And I'm talking, and tell me about, you know, your church and, and so on. And he begins to tell me all the things that he does at his church. Well, I, I set up the chairs, and I, uh, I do this, and, and the chairs are lovely. You know, they're, they're green, and they have a nice plush. And then I'm like, oh. And then the other fellow tells me, you know, I'll tell you this amazing story of how God started our fellowship. You know, my wife and I, we started. And then he begins to tell me his story. And suddenly I realize, hopefully they never know, but this was the pastor. And God was doing an incredible work through this man's life and through his work. And I was humbled. Because I had looked on the outward appearance of a man, and then God showed me that he can use any man if the heart of that man is right. And so here you have this shepherd boy, David. And so God taught me a lesson that day. Don't dismiss people for what they look like on the outside, but instead see what their heart is and how God can work through that. I think another lesson that we can learn here is, do we dismiss the work that God might want to do through us? And we look at our lives, and we say, God could never use me. I don't have training. I don't have education. I don't even have secular education in the world out there. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not good-looking enough. I'm not witty enough. I'm too old. I'm too young. And we can even dismiss ourselves. So perhaps you're a homemaker, a school teacher, which is what I was, a computer technician, a college student, an athletic trainer, a fifth grader. Do you know that our fifth and sixth grade ministry raised enough money to purchase 48 water filters through Compassion International. Those things cost $55 a piece. And these fifth graders had it within their heart to be used by God to provide clean drinking water for 48 different families for a generation, not just for the week or the year or something like that, for an entire generation. Our junior and senior hires, they had it within their heart to raise money through the 30-hour famine. They raised close to $1,500. That will be sent to the Belize Mission Trip and Choice One, the Crisis Pregnancy Center that we are so involved with. I find that remarkable. God can use anyone who puts themselves out there and makes themselves available. Again, though, you might still think, well, surely if God wanted to do a great work, he would use somebody more qualified. You'd be surprised. Peter was a burly fisherman, the Scripture teaches us. Now, the fishermen in that day are similar to some of the fishermen that we have in our day. You, you make enough money so you can have enough money to buy beer. And you drink it through, and you fight, and you fist fight, and you find girls, and all this sort of stuff. Fishermen weren't necessarily people of high moral upstanding in the society. And yet, our first pope, as some people say, Peter, used by God. Paul was a blaspheming, self-righteous Pharisee, used by God. Moses was a murderer in exile from the land who had no right to come back to the land, but God used him. Noah ran a vineyard, we read. Rahab was a prostitute. Esther she was a poor orphan girl who saved the people in the story of the book of Esther. Levi was a tax collector. Scott Webster, our junior high youth leader, is a Mets fan. And yet, despite all of that, God still is working 
through these people. So I'd encourage you, don't dismiss others and don't dismiss yourself. Make yourself available and say, God, how could you use me? Dream a big dream. Let God kind of fill you with a a sanctified dream and say, Lord, why not me? Why can't you accomplish this great work through a person like myself? God used a shepherd boy to slay a giant. He could use you as well. Well, the passage continues. Uh, It goes on and lists a whole bunch of names. I got a whole bunch of charts here for you that you can kind of see the family line as they make their way through. Uh, But for the sake of time, I'll let you read through the rest of uh, chapter 2. But we've learned, I think, we've been reminded. And that's what the book of Chronicles is. This is not new information to the people of Israel. These are reminders to them. Remember, this was written about 400 B.C. We were looking at stories from 1400 and 1600 B.C., thousand years before, and they were reminded, uh, the people of Israel, that is, they were reminded of these truths of how God worked and how God chose them and how God showed himself, showed himself strong to them. And so I hope today that you're reminded that you may come from a Jerry Springer background, but God could work in your life. I hope you're challenged. I hope there's an area, I don't hope there's not, but if there's an area of sin in your life that you've been hiding, you've been putting back, you've been dealing with, kind of shoving it back there, no big deal, minimalizing it, no one will know. Well, it was so many years ago. Deal with it. Bring it to the light of day so that you can move forward, that the chain can be loose that Romans talks about, the book of Romans talks about. And then finally, maybe you're like a David and you feel like you're useless or you have a tendency to look at other people as useless. Remind yourself that God can work through a donkey. Did I say it right? Donkey. And he can work through you. Let's go before the Lord. Father.